I'm your host, Little Dave, and welcome to another episode of Excellent Reception, the podcast where we talk about timeless music and tell the stories behind the songs to help you better understand why they are so amazing. Before we get started, make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and wherever else podcasts are available. Please take the time to leave a review. These help to push up our rankings in the podcast charts so more people can discover excellent reception. Also, check out our website, www.excellentreception.com, for more information about the artists and the songs we have featured on the podcast. Recently on Excellent Reception, we've been on a world tour. We're traveling the globe through music and talking about some of the most mind-blowing international sounds. Our adventures will find us uncovering some groundbreaking songs from the past, as well as discovering modern-day artists from different parts of the globe who are pushing the limits of music further. This time, we are traveling to Japan. This is the Excellent Reception Podcast. Asian island country known as Japan might be the most interesting place in the world. The people of Japan work hard to preserve their rich cultural heritage and maintain their traditions, which are centuries deep. At the same time, they are always looking towards the future and developing new innovations that change the world we live in. This constant push and pull between the old world and new advancement can be felt as an underlying dynamic in all aspects of life in this country. The people of Japan have a strong appreciation for the value of music. Japan is the largest physical music market in the world. There are more than 6,000 music stores still in operation around the country at a time when many are closing across the rest of the world. While the CD has pretty much faded from popularity in most places, This format is still performing well in Japan. The record shops here have some of the most thorough collections around. They are notorious for sending out vinyl collectors to travel the US, Europe, South America, and more in search of some of the most valuable and hard to find records to suit their customers' needs. The music from Japan has a magic of its own. There's a long lineage of music styles that use ancient tones and scales that are uncommon in Western music. They have a diverse assortment of traditional instruments that have the ability to take sounds to places that your average guitar or piano could never touch. With it being a relatively small country with such a strong hunger for music, the musicians of Japan hold themselves to a high standard of quality in order to stand out amongst the competition. There are virtuoso levels of instrumentation and innovative creative concepts found in many of their songs. When these musicians tackle musical genres that originate from outside of Japan, like soul, rock, Latin, classical, and more, they add elements that are uniquely Japanese and attempt to push the limits of these genres to new heights. On today's episode, we are talking about the music of 
Yellow Magic Orchestra, Tawate, Kiki Hatomi, Mariah Takeuchi, and United Future Organization. Excellent reception. It would be hard to talk about forward-thinking Japanese music without mentioning the Yellow Magic Orchestra. They are a trio of talented musicians who include Hiromi Hasono, Yokohiro Takahashi, and Ryuchi Sakamoto. Together, they pushed the limits of what could be done with electronic music and were early innovators of the sound. They combined digital recording techniques, drum machines, synthesizers, and sequencers to create some of the most innovative sounds of their time. Yellow Magic Orchestra is often compared to German electronic innovators Kraftwerk. While Kraftwerk's sound is more mechanical and serious, Yellow Magic Orchestra's music is a lot more loose, playful, and funky. While Kraftwerk attempted to avoid the cliches of mainstream music, Yellow Magic Orchestra embraced pop culture's sensibility with open arms. When the band first joined forces, the focus of Yellow Magic Orchestra was to make songs that poke fun at the Western world's outdated, offensive perception of things they label as Oriental and the fetishization of Asian culture. When it came to music, they wanted to pay tribute and at the same time make a mockery of the easy listening, lounge, and Exotica records of the 1950s and 60s. Exotica was a genre made famous by artists like Les Baxter and Martin Denny, who set out to give listeners the pseudo-experience of visiting exotic locations, such as the Amazon, Asia, Africa, and the South Pacific, through their own interpretations of the native music. Yellow Magic Orchestra decided to take this idea and flip it on its head by reinterpreting it using new technology and by fusing it with other sounds. While much of their music appeared lighthearted and easygoing, there was always a deeper meaning and serious attention paid to aesthetics. The Yellow Magic Orchestra's 1978 self-titled debut was huge in Japan, and by 1979, it found international success with music lovers in the U.S., Europe, and Canada. They continued to record more albums and perform throughout the world over the early part of the 80s before disbanding to return to their reputable solo careers. During these years, they would help to shape the sound of modern music and have a direct influence on genres such as synth-pop, techno, hip-hop, j-pop, and video game music. They would be the first band to incorporate Roland's TR-808 drum machine into their recordings, which is now ubiquitous in today's hip-hop and pop music. Their song, Behind the Mask, from their second album, Solid State Survivor, caught the attention of a few big names in the music industry. One of them was Michael Jackson, who actually recorded his own version of the song with brand new lyrics, which he intended on using on his now legendary Thriller album. Due to royalty disputes, 
with Yellow Magic Orchestra's management. This version didn't get used on Thriller, but it would later appear as a single for an album of unreleased Michael Jackson material following his passing. It would also go on to be covered by many other artists, such as Eric Clapton and the Human League. The all-time classic Yellow Magic Orchestra song is Firecracker from their debut album. Musically, Firecracker is Yellow Magic Orchestra's reinterpretation of Exotica composer Martin Denny's song, Firecracker, which itself is an attempt at recreating folk music from Asia. Yellow Magic Orchestra's version embellishes this melody with heavy disco drums, a funky bass line, an epic string arrangement, and plenty of synthetic beeps and blips. There are definitely more complex and more beautiful tracks in their catalog, but Firecracker is the one that introduced the world to their sound. The song was a hit in discotheques and dance clubs, but it also resonated with the emerging hip-hop community and later with the house and techno scenes. It was funky enough that they would even go on to perform it on the iconic television show Soul Train. So let's listen to it now. Yellow Magic Orchestra's classic, Firecracker.
This is the Excellent Reception Podcast. Back in 1990, smack dab in the middle of hip-hop's golden era came a major hit song that seemed almost completely out of place. It was the funky, retro-futuristic dance tune, Groove is in the Heart, from a group out of New York called D-Light. The members of D-Light were a colorful trio of wacky characters whose personalities complemented their music's references to 60s mod styles and the 70s disco scene. You had lead vocalist Lady Miss Keir, Super DJ Dimitri, and the quiet but cool Tawate. After a short run with Delight, Tawate decided to leave the group right before they released their third album. He returned home to Japan in 1994 and began to set the stage for his solo career. Instead of starting from scratch, Tawate continued to present himself with the same persona he had established as part of D-Light, but pushed it to a level where it was larger than life. If you look through his press release photos and album art from over the years, his presence almost seems surreal. He is always found in mod fashions with his trademark black sunglasses and a blank facial expression that makes you think he almost might be a robot or at least a really cool mannequin. His attention to detail and style can be heard in his music. His production style is largely sample-based beats with a forward-thinking hip-hop sound, but it contains references to easy listening records, cool jazz riffs, and sexy bossa nova melodies. It's all made with a uniquely Japanese sensibility. The resulting music sounds like a quirky and cartoonish soundtrack for a technologically advanced past that never was. Since 1995, Tawate has recorded and released nine solo albums, as well as albums under other aliases. Each album is filled with vocal and instrumental cameos from an assortment of international artists like Kylie Minogue, Biz Markey, Joy Cardwell, Bahamadia, Les Nubians, Arturo Lindsay, and more. But the majority of his collaborators are artists who are mainly known amongst the Japanese and J-pop musical communities. If there's any Tawate song you would recognize, it would definitely be Technova from his first album, Future Listening. It's mainly a jazzy hip-hop instrumental with some bossa nova elements, a saxophone solo, and a catchy little chorus sung by Brazilian vocalist Bebo Gilberto. This song is best known to most of the world as the sample source that Jay Dilla used to create the beat for A Tribe Called Quest's classic song, Find a Way. Now you caught my heart for the evening. Kiss my cheek, move and you confuse me. Should I just sit out or come harder? Help me find my way. Now sing it. So let's listen to it now. Tawate with Technova.
Deception. Japan's connection to reggae music has been apparent for some time now. From the collaborations between Jamaican and Japanese musicians on early projects like Instant Rasta by Pecker, to the 2002 crowning of Japanese dancehall queen Junku Kudu. This is a country with over 300 reggae sound systems and various dub-themed izakayas. For music and visual artist Kiki Hitomi, the reggae sound has been the backbone of her music career. After spending much of the 90s living in London to study design, she developed an affection for lovers rock and dub music. She noticed the similarities between the reggae vocal stylings of artists like Horace Andy and the throat singing heard in Japanese Inca music. As she moved into music making, she incorporated this into her own sound. Some of Kiki's earliest recordings came about when she connected with another Japanese expat, Go Nakata, who records under the name Gorgon. He introduced Kiki to the early sounds of dubstep, which was just in its infancy stage at the time. She introduced him to roots reggae and lovers rock. The pair ended up creating a project under the name Dokebi Q, in which they pooled all of their influences and combined them with experimental electronics. They ended up performing around London, releasing a few EPs, and one full-length album called Hardcore Cherry Bonbon. Kiki later met with electronic producer Kevin Martin, who is best known as The Bug, and joined his new group, King Midas Sound. The Hyperdub Records released debut album from King Midas Sound called Waiting For You made huge waves in the underground. The press release for this album describes it as fitting somewhere between sub-electronic lover's rock, dub, and the bleakest, slowest mutation of narco-hip-hop. It's deep, dark, atmospheric electronic music with intense sub-bass and an almost shoegaze vibe. The songs feature Kiki Hitomi and singer-poet Roger Robinson exploring new ways to use their voices. After the success of King Midas Sound, Kiki moved to Berlin and continued to record. She spent time developing herself musically and began formulating plans for a solo project. She also started working closely with Disrupt, a lo-fi dub producer and head of the German label Jatari. Over the next few years, they focused on cultivating this concept of combining reggae and Inca music. Their time working close together resulted in them starting a family and creating Kiki's groundbreaking solo album, Karma no Kasari, which means chain of karma in Japanese. Karma no Kasari is a trippy journey in the 8-bit psychedelia and digital dub. It's filled with swirling modular synth effects, chiptune blips from a modified Game Boy, distorted drum machine beats, and lots of low-end. The influences from dancehall, hip-hop, anime theme music, rocksteady reggae, UK bass, and traditional Japanese music are not hard to spot. 
If you look up one of the videos for Kiki performing her material live, you will get an idea of the methods she used to create this album. She usually performs alone with a table full of little analog synthesizers, a SP404 sampler, a loop pedal, and various other devices. Everything is being rinsed with delay and reverb to create a dubbing effect. One of the standout tracks from Karma no Kasari is Yellow Story. This song features Kiki rapping in English and Japanese over a lo-fi, rub-a-dub rhythm. In the song, she rhymes about the racism and street harassment she faces as an Asian woman. Let's listen to Kiki Hitomi with Yellow Story. Reception Podcast. It's obvious that the internet, social media, and new technology as a whole has had a huge impact on how human beings interact with each other and how we experience the world. When we look specifically at how people discover music these days, streaming services are giving people the opportunity to expand their musical taste far beyond what it would be from just listening to the radio. This new way of listening has shined a light on songs that didn't reach their full potential when they were originally released. 
and revived interest in genres that were long past their prime. One song that has found a whole new life as a result of these changes in modern technology is Plastic Love from the singer-songwriter Mariah Takeuchi. Mariah is a pretty well-known artist in Japan who has released music from the 70s all the way up to the current decade and has had numerous number one hit songs over the years. After taking a three-year hiatus from recording and performing, she released a comeback album in 1984 called Variety. It would go on to be one of the biggest albums of her career. The following year, she would release the third single from the album, which was Plastic Love. The single was moderately successful, but it peaked at 86 on the pop charts. Some people blame the single's drab and uninspiring artwork as part of the reason the sales weren't higher. The cover for the single was just a plain brown sleeve with bold text and a drawing of a tic-tac-toe game. Mariah's music around this time was part of a larger movement in Japanese music called City Pop. During the 70s and 80s, there was a wave of music that was heavily influenced by popular music being imported from the West, such as soft rock and disco. The real unifying element of this sound was the way it felt. It had a pristine cosmopolitan attitude, and it was reflective of the economic success that Japan was experiencing at the time. I like to describe it as the soundtrack for driving a luxury sports car through the streets of 1980s Tokyo. Decades later, a strange technological anomaly will create relevance for this song with a whole new generation of music lovers around the world who may not have even been born when the original was released. If you've ever found yourself exploring the endless collection of music that users have taken it upon themselves to upload to YouTube, I'm pretty sure at some point you have seen a suggestion for Plastic Love. If you pay attention to the recommended videos, it will eventually appear. A simple black and white photo of a happy young Japanese woman dressed in a white shirt with a black bow tie. If you see the suggestion enough times, you are bound to click on it out of curiosity. Something unexplainable with the way the recommendation algorithm functions has caused Plastic Love to become one of the most suggested pieces of music-related content on YouTube. Many of the early devotees of Plastic Love were young people who were seeking out newer underground genres like Future Funk and Vaporwave, which sample a lot of J-pop, anime themes, and city pop. This cult following played a big factor in the song's initial rise in popularity by boosting the views of the YouTube video, spreading it across Reddit and Tumblr, and making it part of meme culture. You can easily find cover versions, remixes, and tracks that sample Plastic Love all across the internet. Even the now iconic image of Mariah Takauchi has spawned parodies and inspired recreations through fan art. Her smiling face has become the symbol for a quiet movement happening across the World Wide Web. When people finally take a moment to listen to the song, they can't help but fall in love with it. It's a simple feel-good pop song with a laid-back attitude and a groove that will inspire you to dance. Mariah sings in both English and Japanese about leaning on material possessions to heal the pain of a broken heart. So let's listen to it now. Mariah Takauchi with Plastic Love.
excellent reception. Sophisticated sounds, stylish black suits, and shaken martinis. These are the things that come to mind as you listen to the music of the group known as United Future Organization, or UFO as their fans call them. The members of this group include Tadashi Yabi, Toshio Matsura, and Frenchman Raphael Sebeg. The three met as DJs in the 1980s nightclub scene and bonded over their love of jazz, Latin music, and other sounds from around the globe. At the suggestion of a friend, the trio decided to start recording music of their own. They wanted to take their combined knowledge of sounds from the past and use it to create something that works in the jazz-themed club nights they were hosting. The issue was, none of these guys knew how to play any instruments or had a basic understanding of music theory. So they decided to leverage the one skill set they knew best, playing records. To record the foundations of the earliest United Future Organization songs, they would have three full DJ setups in the studio. Each member would search through their record collections for interesting piano melodies, horn stabs, drum breaks, and sound bites. They would use all six turntables to experiment with blending these different elements and figure out what works best together. Then they would work with producer Ayumi Obinata to program and arrange these snippets of music into full songs. The resulting tracks were fully sample-based productions that for the most part felt like old beatnik era jazz records. This can be heard best on the United Future Organization's first single, I Love My Baby, My Baby Loves Jazz, from 1991. Let's listen to a quick snippet of that right now. The music of the United Future Organization was a refined and refreshing contribution to the emerging acid jazz scene of the early 90s. With each album, they constructed their sound around a specific set of themes and concepts. They can be heard tackling accordion-driven nods to Serge Gainsbourg, reviving 1950s beat scene poetry, exploring the Brazilian songbook, and covering jazz standards like Stolen Moments. On their 1996 album, Third Perspective, they took their sound into a cinematic direction with a collection of espionage-themed songs that sounded like the soundtrack for a spy movie that never existed. It even includes their rework of Lalo Schifrin's iconic Mission Impossible theme on a track called The Planet Plan. There was another version of this that was a straightforward cover of the legendary theme song that was intended for Tom Cruise's Mission Impossible remake. But sadly, it didn't make the cut. United Future Organization's 1999 album, Bon Voyage, was centered around the theme of travel. And it included the standout track, 
flying saucer. First of all, the idea of a group known as UFO making a song called Flying Saucer seems almost too obvious, but they really make it work. The music is built around samples of the song My Brother by James Brown's band, the JBs. up the beat expertly extracts the jazz chops out of an instrumental that was intended to be a funk song. The lyrics are a cover of the classic James Moody pen standard, Flying Saucer, that was originally recorded with Milt Jackson for his live album, Milt Jackson at the Museum of Modern Art. This time, it is sung by the illustrious vocalist Dee Dee Bridgewater, who brings a whole new level of emotion and energy to the song through her performance. Let's listen to it right now. United Future Organization with Flying Saucer.
is the Excellent Reception Podcast. Thank you once again for tuning in to Excellent Reception. If you love what we're doing here, please spread the word to other music lovers you know. Make sure you check us out at excellentreception.com. And if you haven't done it yet, please subscribe to the podcast so you can be the first to hear new episodes. Also, you can listen to my broadcast radio show, Eavesdrop Radio, in Philadelphia every Friday from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. on WKDU 91.7 FM or streaming live online at WKDU.org. So until next time, this is your host, Little Dave, signing off for excellent reception, where we're always coming in loud and clear with the sounds you need to hear. This is the Excellent Reception Podcast. Podcast.